Hello and welcome to the Limerick Community Voices podcast presented by Limerick Public Participation Network. The PPN is a network of community voluntary, social inclusion and environmental organisations working to improve the lives of people in Limerick City and County. Limerick Public Participation Network enables the community to be represented in decision-making processes such as Limerick City and County Council committees and local public consultation processes. We believe that by working together we can better share ideas and information, amplify our voices and help create a better Limerick for all. To find out more and to get involved with the PPN, please visit limerickppn.ie or email us at ppn at limerick.ie. We would love to hear from you. This podcast brings you the voices of some of the many great people involved in the PPN. In each episode, we learn a little about each guest, how they got started in the work they are doing, and their thoughts on making a difference in the community. Without further ado, let's join our host, Patrick Fitzgerald, for this episode of the Limerick Community Voices podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the PPN podcast. I'm delighted to be here today with Una Burns. She is the Head of Policy and Communication with Novus here and sits as a rep on the Home and Social Development SPC. Thank you so much for joining me today, Una. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for inviting me, Pat. I'm delighted to uh, participate in this podcast and share some information about how the PPN is of value to Novus. That's great. So, Una, what's your position here at Novus? So I am Head of Policy and Communications. Um, I've been working here about uh, 10 years and it's a kind of a broader role. Um, I look after advocacy work, policy work, uh, communications work, which is both uh, internal communications, communication with our staff, um, which is uh, which are national. We're a national organisation, so we have staff right across the country, and then um, external communication, so media, uh, members of the public, uh, funders, statutory partners, and government, and so forth. Um, I look after fundraising, um, social media, the website. Um, so it's 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 really a variety, and every day is different. It sounds like a really broad, nice role. It is. It is a, a really nice role, and it's really broad. Um, and it kind of, you know, every I'm here about 10 years now, so every year I, I think new little bits get added onto it, which really makes every day different. And it's very exciting. I suppose the only maybe downside of it is sometimes you don't get to maybe interrogate things as much as you would like to. You know, if you're, you know, doing a pre-budget mm-hmm. submission or um, you're presenting to a, a, a uh, joint Rockdus committee yeah. or something that you would like to spend a lot of time and sometimes you don't get uh, the sense. luxury of that. Yeah. You know. And before, as we were setting up, I asked you when Novus was founded mm. and you said Novus was founded here in Limerick. That's correct. Yeah. So Novus was founded in Limerick in 2002 um, and primarily uh, the vast majority of our services are still in the Midwest. So the very first service was a residential service um, set up in um, St. John's Square in the city. And it was uh, mixed gender, which was unusual at the time. Okay. There wasn't many mixed genders and it was, you know, a, a hostel style accommodation. Yeah. And it supports people that were in addiction. So if you're active in your addiction and at the time, primarily it was street drinkers. So addiction in terms of drugs, and benzodiazepine, heroin addiction stuff didn't come wow. for a couple of years um, after that. So it was largely street drinkers at the time okay. who couldn't access existing accommodation because they were active in their addiction. Yeah. And um, the council and the local authority, or the local authority in the HSE in Limerick, reported a number of deaths of hypothermia every year so in in Limerick in, during in, the winter yeah, time, during the winter time. Oh, wow. okay. so they were trying to look for something new and they looked to other jurisdictions to try to find existing yeah. examples and they traveled to London and they traveled to a place called the Arlington House in London to see um, the, the service there which was a very well-known service at the time a huge service that hundreds of people lived in um, and it was uh, support to people that were 
street drinkers, people that were active in their drinking addiction and did so successfully. So it wasn't something that had been trialled in Limerick before then. And when on their travels, um, they met the, the, the chair of the board at the time, who was a volunteer called um, Joe McGarry. And um, Joe was an Irish man who had emigrated as a young man, I think the age of 18, um, to London to find work like many Irish people mm. did at the time. Um, started labouring, spent lots of evenings in the pub, you know, um, kind of hiding the loneliness and, you know, trying to find a new community yeah. in his new home and soon fell into addiction. And he spent almost three decades in addiction on the streets in London, spent some time in prison for 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 his addiction and for yeah. living on the streets and stuff. And um, again, would have found it really difficult to access emergency accommodation. But then this place, Arlington Lodge, was opened and it, or Arlington House, should I say, and it um, accepted people that were in addiction. And he lived there and through his time there, when he went in, he was very much deep in his addiction. Uh, but he started to address that addiction. He was yeah. there and became sober while he was there. Um, and then began to kind of volunteer there and sit on their board and became the chair of their board. And he came over on the request of, uh, as a volunteer, um, at the request of the local authority and the HSE here to kind of do a needs assessment, what's needed. Um, so he kind of did a street outreach for the first year or so. Here in Limerick? Here in Limerick, oh, okay. kind of going around the street under the bridges, meeting the people that were off sleeping, yeah. engaging with them, trying to, I suppose, build up a relationship, make them feel safe, make them feel welcome, trying to destigmatize their lives yep. and their addiction. And I think it's really interesting that many of those first men particularly that came into our service um, had been men that grew up in institutions um, and you know Catholic institutions in Ireland mm. at the time industrial schools and other kinds of institutions and were really traumatized by their experience there and were reluctant to come in I suppose I was just wondering would that make them more reluctant absolutely, to engage yeah it would um, it would make them more suspicious yeah their experiences weren't positive of that kind of um communal living yeah. um, and definitely the kind of shame and stigma and abuse that they had experienced and those you know fed into their addiction yeah. and fed into their isolation in our communities um, so he kind of worked really closely with them and I think the lived experience that he had you know really connected with with the people that were rough sleeping and then the first service was opened in 2002 here in Limerick. In, yeah, here in Limerick. But he, he had come over before that, yeah. a year before that, um, doing the kind of the work with them um, on the streets. And they came in, um, they had somewhere to stay, they were accepted. Um, if they were drinking, that was okay too. That's why they needed our help. Yeah. And it made them, it kept them safer and it kept the community safer because the drinking was controlled, it was managed in house. Yeah. Um, you know, it had a really bad name when it opened first. Um, uh, it was called Bridgent House at the time and it moved um, in 2012 um, and changed name to McGarry House, which is the largest low threshold SDA in the Midwest. And that's the one down near the Dock Road? That's the one near yes. the Dock Road. So yeah. that was originally Bridgent House and originally um, in St. John's Square. And um, recently, actually, uh, for our last annual report, I met the first manager of... Um, of McGarry House and her experience of it. And she said, you know, it had a very, very bad name. It was kind of like people thought it was like the end of the world, like the Wild West inside. And it was yeah. nothing like that. They were just humans like you or I um, that happened to have an addiction. But mm -hmm. when they were safe and when they were warm and when they felt engaged and, you know, it was 
they they helped us manage it at the very beginning. I mean, we couldn't get, you know, it was right in the boom. It was yeah. difficult to get staff. They helped. It wouldn't happen nowadays, I suppose. There's much more legislation, but they helped with the kitchen. They helped, you know, with the cleaning. They managed it. They had a real ownership of it and yeah. felt very proud of it. And, you know, it wasn't what people perceived it to be. And, you know, you could kind of get to the core of, mm-hmm. of why people were in addiction and why people spent their time on the street drinking. and. Yeah. When I was talking to Helen, she said, you know, you did the best work in the middle of the night and, you know, you'd say, come in and have a cup of coffee and we'll have a chat in the office. And she said, when you heard their stories, you wondered, like, how were they even alive? Like yeah. the trauma they'd been through, you know, they'd never been read a book by their yeah. mother. They'd never experienced those things as children and their drinking was self-medication, you know, and yes. it was their, you know, they were just overcoming their own trauma. Um, so... It was like that was really insightful, I think. And I think yeah. sometimes you got to the core of those things in the depths of the night when, you know, the paperwork wasn't being done and the appointments didn't have to be met. And um, it was it was a great place for people that had been excluded all their lives. And I'm very lucky that I know people that work down in McGarry. Okay. And I've been in McGarry House a few okay. times. And ye have loads of support workers that work with the people to help them in wherever they want to go and things like that. Is that we do absolutely yeah. yeah so we have support workers or key workers who kind of manage the you know work in the yeah. service and each uh, person who comes to live in a place like McGarry House is assigned a key worker yeah. they're called so they're their support worker for yeah. the period of time and they collaboratively develop an exit plan with the client so you know it's all about you know their own goals and what they want to achieve themselves as yeah. opposed to us imposing what we think they should achieve and it, you know and, and there's a lot of work with that you know maybe sometimes people feel like they want to achieve nothing because they haven't mm-hmm. achieved anything so yeah. It's kind of working to build up that confidence yeah. and that independence and that empowerment, yeah. you know, it's, and it's about that empowerment. So you're not doing things for them, you know, that you're just because you're homeless or just because you might have an addiction doesn't mean you have, you know, experience and you've lived experience mm-hmm. to share and that you can really change the course of other people's lives. And we do lots of um, stuff down there. Like we have a program called Topple where it's a peer overdose program where, um, people that may be in addiction themselves or may have been in addiction themselves, you know, learn how to respond to overdose, how to spot it, how to bring emergency services, how to, you know, do to, you know, bring them back to life, how to um, um, inject naloxone um, and how to support people who, you know, may have gone through the experience of addiction and of overdose and Mm. that in those weeks and months after that to support them and identify triggers and things like that. So there's lots of ways, you you know, people that are in addiction or people that are homeless also are are very powerful in their own right and to harness that that and to ensure that their voice is heard in the daily operations service is really important and as well as key workers and we have health and well-being workers who support people with the physical health mental health dual diagnosis of addiction and mental health which is very often the case and dual diagnosis is a whole topic in it itself, is a whole like, topic yeah. in itself and it's a really underserviced kind of area of health yeah. where very often we see our clients bounced from addiction services to mental health services yeah. and they can't access one because they are entrenched in addiction and vice versa so are they being turned away then and yeah said, well, and they can get bounced around for really long periods of time and it just compounds our problem compounds our exclusion compounds our shame and sometimes they die in that process you know now I know like there's a lot of more recognition on dual diagnosis now and there is more commitment by government um, to provide services for people and you know our health and well-being workers 
who are very involved in the support of people in dual diagnosis are funded by the government. So, you know, it's absolutely recognised that we are progressing in that way. But I think there needs to be additional recognition. And I think it's important that people, as well as having services in-house, can access mainstream, mainstream services, you know, in the community for dual diagnosis. That's very true. And there's so many questions I have around NOVAS and mm. we'll definitely try and come back to them. Yes. So your role within NOVAS is head of communications, am yes. I correct? Yeah. And you kind of give a brief about that at the start. Yes. What got you into it? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, absolutely. Delighted to talk about it. So I suppose my, it's a kind of a meandering path into um, home services. So um, I originally studied history and politics in UL. Um, so you're from Limerick? I'm from Limerick, yeah, okay. from Corbally, just out the road, and um, went to UL for my undergraduate um, course and then did immediately did a master's in UCC in international relations. So not the the, just the immediate course and went and taught English abroad for a year. Wow, um, where did you go abroad? I, I, Barcelona. That sounds... Yeah, so that was fab. <laughs> that was just a year of like partying and, yeah. and you know, experiencing new culture. And, and it was like the, like it was 2006, so it was kind of pre you know Netflix or anything and yeah. you know I didn't have a sense so like <laughs> it was like I didn't have a television yeah. you know you didn't watch things yeah. online at the time so it was like lots of like during the week just reading like I, I read so much that year and then like just parting yeah. you know and teaching on site so so then when I came back I lived in Dublin and worked in kind of um, administrative roles mm-hmm. for a couple of months and um, my supervisor who had supervised my uh, master's just contacted me and said look we're um, we've got this funding for a PhD. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was successful when I applied for that. I was successful. So I did a PhD in Irish history. So I did it in collaboration with Port of Cork yeah. and it was funded by the Port of Cork and it was examined. Port of Cork? Sorry? Who are Port of Cork? The po- so Am I saying the port. That right? Yeah, the port. Okay. Yeah. So the. The, the port in, in Cork. So they wanted oh, to look at, okay. sorry, yeah, yes. yeah. So they wanted to look at um, emigration routes um, through the port of Cork during the 19th century. That's suppose, interesting. Yeah, it was interesting because Cove was like, um, you know, one of the largest deep water ports in the world yeah. um, and the largest in Ireland. And, you know, the, the most of the famine emigration went from there and subsequent ones when the really big liners going to the States came in, they could berth there where they couldn't berth in many ports because it was so deep. So it was examining that. And even before that, early in the 19th century, like the transportation to um, Australia and stuff. So just looking at those routes and kind of how those routes really followed um you know, economic routes. Yeah. So the economic routes kind of came first. And, you know, at the very beginning, there was no dedicated ships for people. They just went on um, on ships with live animals and, you know, it was kind of wow. examining those routes. So I did that for about, I, I studied for my PhD for about three and a half years. And I think it was about 2010 when I graduated and I moved to Dublin and I worked in an educational NGO. So I suppose that was my first experience of working in in an NGO. It was entirely different to Novus, but it was, I really enjoyed it. Um, It was, it was very, it was interesting. And I worked there for about two years and I was married at this time. And I was pregnant and my husband lived in Limerick and I lived in Dublin. So obviously that was a little that must have been tough. unsustainable. <laughs> so um, so when my daughter was born, um, I moved back to Limerick and I was on maternity leave and it was 2012. Yeah. And there were very little jobs on the ground. You know, we were right in the depths of the recession. Yeah. And I was like thinking, I need to work. Um, do I go back to Dublin and commute up and down or... And not this the, a job. It came um, a kind of a coordinator, low level managerial job mm-hmm. in Novus for 
more, um, I think it was kind of development coordinator was the role. Yeah. And it, it included kind of communications and stuff. And, and what year was that? Here in Novus. And what year? 2012. Oh, wow. So yeah. they would have been up and running 10 years at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. it would have been. And never had a role like this. So I yeah. think, you know, Novus has always really developed organically, um, you know, and probably, you know, and develop quickly and then you know you're kind of putting some of the structures in place after the fact you know and so so they were kind of looking for somebody maybe to manage that media side and the comm side and then the fundraising I suppose Mm -hmm. that would come with that um so I said sure I'd give it a shot even though I had no experience with um homelessness I suppose the stuff I had done lent itself to communications beforehand so I was successful thankfully and kind of that's the end so I started in January um 2013. So I'm here wow. nearly 10 years now. Yeah. So that's my role. That's my route into it, which isn't very straight or, yeah. you know, and I, I loved it from the very beginning. Um, and Novus has developed so much in the last yeah. 10 years, has developed so many new services, so many mm-hmm. new staff, sports thousands of additional people annually. Yeah. Um, and it's been a real whirlwind and such a learning curve. You know, I, I go away from it if I ever leave, like a different <laughs> person, you know, yeah. you, like it's such a privilege to to meet the people that uh, we serve and to hear their life experiences. It's, it's, it's amazing. And was that your, I think you mentioned that before, was that your first experience into the homelessness Absolutely sector? Absolutely, my first experience. I mean, bar what anybody would maybe see on the street, you know, I had no, um, like I had no understanding of it. Um, So it was really eye opening. I remember like the first day I started, um, there was a number, uh, you know, our head office at the time was on the top floor of McGarry House now. And um, the head of service at the time just brought me for a walk around and she was saying this McGarry House and there was a floor there uh, kind of with a couple of um, uh, bedrooms or kind of there were self-contained units and yeah. um, she was like we actually have a number of pregnant women living here at the moment so this is their kind of dedicated corridor and like I had a six month old at home you oh, know wow. and I was just yeah. thinking oh like that is so sad for those women yeah. that this is where they live and they you know knowing that they couldn't live there when the baby was born because it's an adult service you know it wouldn't be appropriate and so they either come back here without their baby or... Is that what they, happens? Well, it dep- it's all depends on the circumstances. Okay, yeah. You know, if if the, the woman, the mum is... She she might be perfectly capable to, you know, raise her own yep. baby. So she will have to live somewhere else then probably in another emergency accommodation. Or maybe if um, if the baby goes into care, then she'll come yep. back. You know, it, it depends on the pers- personal circumstances. But it was a real... You know, as a first day went, I like I never forget thinking, "Oh my God, why is there a life like that?" You know, and yeah. my life is so different. You know, it was um, it was a real, you know, eye opener, yeah, a real eye opener. Like, yeah, yeah I, you know, I, that was ten years ago. I, I remember it like it was yesterday, and I can you know? feel the emotion even yeah. as I'm saying it too. Yeah, yeah. it was a, uh, you know, and uh, every day there was some, you know, the trauma that people experience, the adverse childhood experiences. They never had a chance, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, most of our, you know, addiction, homelessness can happen to anybody. And we know that now more yeah. than ever because of the economic consequences yep. that we're experiencing at the moment and the shortage of housing. It can happen to anybody. But people that grow up on the margins of society, people that grow up in impoverished households, mm-hmm. you know, um, communities that are traumatized fr- from criminality and yeah. drugs and stuff, they are more predisposed to it, you know. Wow. Yeah, so... And is that one of your motivations, I suppose, yeah, in coming definitely. to work? And- yeah, absolutely. Um, 
it would de- you know you'd always want their story to be told yes. um and if possible by them you yeah. know because uh you know i could talk all day about it but like somebody that tells their own stories it's just so much more powerful yeah um and you know even if whether like my as i said my job is really broad ranging so it also includes applying for new services so if the government is you know the department of housing or the department of health or advertising for an, a new service provider to mm-hmm. open a new service, then, you know, like anything else, we tender for, th- you know, like any piece of work, the government yep. and th- through a platform called eTender. So like I might be doing that job. So if you're, whether you're applying for a new ten- a new job, a new service, you're thinking about what you could do for clients, yeah. whether you're, you know, writing an annual report, you're very conscious that I want the story of our clients to be told and yeah. that to be felt. And it's not just about the statistics. It's, the statistics are really important because yep. they should inform our policy as an or, as an organization and as a, a nation. Yep. But like also within those statistics, telling those human stories is really important. So or whether you're applying for funding yep. for something, it's to make the lives of the clients better. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a huge motivating factor. Because I think that when you hear the story, I suppose, or read the story, it kind of gives you that that emotional connection, really, that kind of Absolutely. where you're feeling that story or feeling that person and what Absolutely. they're going through. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so easy, you know, at the moment, the homeless figures are extraordinary. The Department of Housing just um, issued their um, monthly report for August and it's, it's normally the last Friday of the month. Mm-hmm. So it was in September. It was just Friday gone. And like, again, another over 300 people, really? people homeless at the highest number ever in the state. Oh, wow. And it's, it's sometimes, it's, that's very overwhelming. And, you know, sometimes like, how do, you know, how do we solve this problem? And in that process, sometimes the human stories get lost. So it's important yes. to kind of keep those at the forefront simultaneously to yeah. the data, because the data is important and those figures are extraordinary. And are they some of the challenges? Because that was my next question, actually. It's like, what are the challenges that you're seeing? That's the biggest challenge, without a shadow of a doubt. Okay. Um, it's the, the unabated, like, rise in homeless figures. is It's staggering. Um, we had a really good spell during COVID mm-hmm. where the, particularly the number of families dropped significantly. Yeah. Um, because of the moratorium on evictions and the rent freezes and because suddenly the market was flooded with opportunities to rent air things that were recently or previously um, being rented for Airbnb. Oh, because what what happened with Airbnb? So there was no tourism. Okay, you know, so for COVID for two years, like in suddenly in March, you know, all tourism was gone. So then landlords that had been, you know, renting for short stays were providing kind of they were providing 12 and 18 months um tent so they weren't long term yeah but they were because obviously there was always the expectation that the tourist market would come back but they were long like if you've got an 18 month tenancy as a family rather than living in a hotel obviously that's an amazing thing that's true so there was an exodus from hotels particularly in dublin there was a great opportunity there was a lot more airbnb um accommodation freed up so we saw a huge drop in the number of families um, but that's shot right back up. We never got that bounce with single people. Okay. So the, the number of homeless people kind of continued to slowly increase um, in in terms of single adults during mm. the pandemic because they never really had access to the market anyway. Okay. Um, so it didn't benefit them in the same way. And because we have such a shortage of one bed units, which single people, that's all they'd be entitled to access. Okay, okay. Yeah. You know, that it didn't have the same impact on them. So then we were starting at a really high base. So when the numbers started to creep up after the pandemic, 
we were already at such a high base for sing for single people that wow. like you know so we've the highest numbers and that does not include people that are rough sleeping it doesn't include people that are in squats it doesn't include um people that are hidden homeless sofa surfing yeah. going from families to friends every night it's just people that are in kind of emergency accommodation that's funded by the state so we know that the numbers of actual people with insecure or um, substandard or totally inadequate and mm. overcrowded housing is much higher than than the official figures and because I suppose from the Airbnb section going and then the rent market coming up, is the rent prices then, that's all I've read about too recently, is how it's, the rent prices have been. He, like, it's, it's so unsustainable. It's so unsustainable for people who, for everybody. I yeah. mean, for people who are working, yeah. for people, and then people that are dependent on the HAP payments. It's really, really unsustainable. And the rates, now there's discretionary rates, um, so for people that have experienced homelessness or risk of homelessness, they can elevate the HAP rates, but even that, the, the elevated rate is, doesn't meet it. And the just flat rates haven't got, gone up since 2017, which we know that. So um, the HAP hasn't moved since no, 2017? No, except for the discretionary rates. Okay. So it's really like it, they don't reflect rent. So people yeah. then like, obviously they're low income in the first place if they've been yeah. de designated HAP. Then they're paying huge top-ups out of their whatever low income they have and it just becomes really unsustainable for people or else they can't access it in the first place anyway and that makes sense. there's so many evictions to sell so many landlords even the market so they're giving people notice to quit because they need they need to sell with vacant possession mm -hmm. and um it's just it's kind of hard to know where it's going to go in the short term because the supply of social housing and affordable housing just takes time yeah you know that's just the nature of it and landlords are exiting the market and that's what they were saying they're saying it's more, yeah phenomenal and about 70 percent of homeless people exit homelessness through the private rented market Do they? yeah so if private rented is totally unachievable for people it's, yeah in terms of the rental cost and in terms of the huge contraction yep. of property, then there's no ex the exits shrink very, very quickly then. Wow. Yeah. And what are Nova's doing, I suppose, to help combat this? Yeah, so we're an approved housing body. So we buy properties and develop properties. So we have a number of, like, we have about 300 tenancies nationally and we continue to, to purchase and to, to build. Um, and as a housing yeah. body, what does that mean? So we buy property and we rent it to people that are on the social housing waiting list. So ah, it would be, so nice. yes, so in every, say, county yeah. that we buy property, we do it in collaboration with the local authority there. So okay. we identify properties, we go to the local authority, they um, give it the okay. So we can buy it through funding, but through the Department of Housing. So that's how we, we fund these things. Okay. And then, so then we work with the local authority and the local authority nominate people from their social housing waiting list into our properties and they pay like the rents are like they're done it's called differential rent um and it's done a similar way that uh, uh it's the same it, like it's the social housing tenant so they would pay the yeah. same as if they were paying it to the yep. local authority and um they have like that tenancy for life unless like there's issues obviously That's really but good. it is it's 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 similar to so it's a social house yeah. so it's 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 very similar process that if you were granted a, so, uh, a social house by the local authority mm -hmm. and then sometimes we the local authority might sublet properties to novas so if they had tenants 
that, um, you know, were at risk of losing their tenancy, had very complex needs that maybe the local authority wouldn't have the skills to support it. We might take over the tenancy because we would have those skills of working with maybe very large families, families that might mightn't be paying the rent that we could work with them to kind of help them money manage, help them with their budget, help them with just general life skills. Maybe if there was antisocial behaviour, we'd be working with them around that. So because we would have those social care skills as well as the tenancy skills. And that sounds like more of a holistic package rather than just, look, we'll get you a house. And, yes. Yeah. And for some people, all they need is a house. Yeah. They just need a house. Their their income doesn't um, permit them to, to access housing in the private rent market or to get yeah. a mortgage to buy a house. So sometimes people just need social housing and they don't need anything else. And they, you know, and that's wonderful. Yeah. Sometimes people need additional support. There might be addiction in the house. There might be a family, you know, like a mum who grew up in care herself that doesn't have any life skills because was never taught any life skills, never got those life skills by osmosis that most of us just learn, you know, that we don't even realise we're learning from living in a home. Yeah. Um, so they, they might need support around life skills. Sometimes, you know, there could be an older child in the house that might be causing issues in the community. So we come in and do some work around that. There might be, you know, school refusal and you might be supporting them to access education. Mm-hmm. Um, a variety of things, you know, a variety, you know, they might be engaged with social work, you know, with Tusla and they, you know, they might be mandated to link with Novus yeah. and to get that support to keep the children and things like that. So there's a variety of things. So when, there is complexities in the family. We can work really well in maintaining their tenancy and enhancing their life. That's really good. Yeah. And is there any new initiatives, I suppose, not to put you on the spot or anything like that, but is there any new initiatives or projects or things like that that's upcoming in the next few months from Novus? So, um, no, that's... uh, Only the ones you can talk about, Yeah, no, it's a really nice question (laughs) because um, we, Novus, operate from a perspective of trauma-informed practice. Okay, that's interesting. So, we, rather than kind of recognizing somebody's having challenging behavior you're looking at it as, as trauma-induced behavior so yeah. kind of we pivot pivoted our view we pivot our view on people instead of saying what's wrong with you it's like what happened to you yes because we know that most people we work with have experienced trauma in their yeah. lives and many of them since childhood so about in 2017 we kind of heard this kind of concept in, in an international conference, it's like, wow, that's really interesting. And particularly because we work with people with complex needs, it very much fits yeah. with the people we work with. And and kind of just put language on a way we kind of probably worked anyway, but then helped us to develop that and yeah. enrich that and enrich the experience for our clients. Because very often staff who are very well-intentioned and qualified can unintentionally re-traumatize people. You know, what's wrong with you? Why are you shouting? Why are you acting like that? Yes. You know, and, and, and you know, which seems like maybe a very reasonable way to ask somebody, yeah. but can just like really heighten them emotionally yeah. and they can become very disengaged from services very quickly because they feel like, oh, this is, you know, they, actually it's subconscious very much of the time. They don't even know, yeah. you know, that they're disengaged. But it can be so easy that that can happen. Like, Absolutely. I suppose, yeah. So we worked with a social research company in Dublin called Quality Matters and we developed uh, trauma-informed practice training, which there wasn't really anything to meet your needs in Ireland at the time. So we kind of developed this in collaboration with these social researchers. And by the end of 2018, all um staff were trained in trauma-informed practice so wow. everybody from the CEO right down yeah. so it doesn't matter it does it didn't just 
we we were very clear from the beginning it's not just the frontline staff they should everybody should understand yes. this so that if you're ringing a manager and saying you know why don't you have your returns in or some there's an issue with hr or i asked you to do something for me and then they're like this happened in the service so mm. we all understand that that trauma impacts everybody yeah. So everybody in the organization was trained and we've really kind of developed that now that we have refresher training that we launched actually and we developed during the pandemic, which was a really big achievement. We are just this month uh, launching uh, training, especially for managers, so they can support staff through the secondary trauma that they experience from working with people that are in trauma. That's really good. Yeah, it is. It's so important because like the vicarious trauma is a big issue for mm. people that work in social work and social <laughs> care. So like recognizing that and responding to that is really important. Yeah. And we have, we did in August this year, we did our first trauma informed audit. So it was an external audit done in collaboration with our clients to say how trauma informed are we? And it was benchmarked off these standards that were developed, not by Novus, but by the sector. Yeah. Um, so it helps us examine and identify our strengths and also identify our weaknesses and target our approaches to, to those weaknesses. So I think that's really, it's really, um, it, valuable way of looking at things yeah. um, and we have seen real value in um, reducing the number of instances in our services so wh when things can you know when you live in congress settings even if you'd know issues like things can escalate yeah. because you could be sharing a room with someone you've never met before you know you've nowhere to escape to you've no privacy yeah. you know so i suppose when staff recognize trauma an incident start or potentially could start you know now they've got these they can recognize it as trauma and can much easier de-escalate the issues and the instances. So we've seen, you know, a really nice drop in instances in our services. So that's a really good indication for us that, that it works, you yeah. know. So it's, it's, it's really, um, it's exciting. It's, it's still very new. It's the language of it is gaining traction in kind of social and human services mm -hmm. across the country and, you know, kind of courts and not just homelessness and it's very relevant to health settings and you know all that um but it's it's definitely new and it's definitely a journey and i wouldn't say oh look at us we've got the silver bullet for sure we don't but it definitely helps our practice and helps our clients and makes them feel safe and kind of destigmatizes maybe behaviors that before would have been very stigmatized and it's not it's not about allowing all sorts of behavior to happen it's about working with the person to kind of say you know maybe you're a little bit triggered mm. here and maybe and and recognizing yep. the trigger and staff changing their behaviors as well it's just so we're not just expecting clients to change theirs you know i think it's lovely to see organizations that are willing to put in the work put in the effort to really change and really try their best to be improving and constantly yeah forward. yeah and it, it was a it was a big sh shift and and you know it's great to be involved in it but it's the frontline staff you know they're the ones That's that true. that do it every day and you know they're the ones that you know really bought into this early on and could see the benefit of it and sometimes you know it's hard to always be trauma informed you know sometimes mm -hmm. you could be coming along off a long shift that's been really hard and someone's behavior isn't the best and you know you yep. really have to try to keep yourself in that as it's referred to as your window of tolerance like recognizing right i have to stay in this positive space to be able to respond appropriately or recognizing that i'm not in this space so i need to walk away That's for true. a second ground myself and come back and respond then and the staff are amazing and i think they're so amazing because they see the benefit of it and there's some really like really amazing stories of how it has impacted our clients yeah you mentioned success stories. 
Yes. Uh, do you have like one or two or anything that really stands out to you? Um, very early on in our journey, um, there's one that, like, there's so many, but this one I think is really powerful. Um, we have a number of women-only services in Dublin, so they're um, residential services, temporary mm -hmm. residential yep. services, just for women. Um, and there aren't so many of those in the country, but it's important because often, you know, their homelessness comes from coercive control and domestic yeah. and sexual violence. And um, the women there are have experienced so much trauma in their lives and often have literally come from the streets into the service and service wasn't open long at all and it was a service that wasn't purpose built it had a different purpose for it and there's glass everywhere internal glass i think it must have been like to keep an eye on everybody in some kind of institution okay. at some stage yeah. you know and a woman that lived there uh wanted something to eat and it was the evening time and she asked the staff can i have something to eat and they said yeah i'll be with you in a second and she said can i have something to eat and they were like yeah just one second i'm doing whatever x y and z and she escalated really quickly um which was common for her when she asked for something to eat and it wasn't it wasn't straight away she and she smashed some windows oh, wow. okay. so normally like that would probably end up in exclusion because um obviously it's very dangerous for everybody around yeah. her but the manager who was really committed to trauma informed practice um he just said to her look come on in and we'll have a chat and we'll see and the manager said to her i noticed that you know when you ask for something to eat and you don't get it straight away that like you know you escalate really quickly do you want to like talk about that or you know and then she said um when i was younger my parents were both heroin addicts and I'd ask for something to eat and they'd always say in a minute and days would go by and I wouldn't be okay. fed and you know that brings her back to being that child yep. that's hungry and I think that was like such a powerful thing that we were able to recognize that so then you even whatever you're doing you respond straight away yeah. and you give her that food because that's what she needs right yeah. then and until you can build that trust to say okay you might have to wait five minutes would you know I'm going to come yeah. to you and you know I'm going to feed you and you're not going to be hungry and you're not that child yeah. And I think without the trauma-informed approach, we probably wouldn't have gotten to be able to identify that. And she didn't get evicted, even though obviously, you know, we can't break windows. But if you really understand where someone's coming from, you won't allow that situation to happen again. And you'll work with that person as mm -hmm. well to kind of, so they can unpack their own behavior. And even like, you know, the kind of refresher training was about, okay, now we recognize the trauma, and but how can we have safe conversations with clients to say, you know, we know your trauma, your, your behavior is induced by your trauma, but how can we change that behavior? Because if you continue to do that, you will continue to be excluded from all sorts of services yeah, yeah, and all sorts sense. of engagement. Yeah. So like, you know, moving it on from recognizing it then to like responding to it and trying to, in a very careful way, in a very respectful way to get the client to identify it, recognize it, and then be able to kind of manage it. You know, that's so, really good yeah. and really powerful too. It is. You to get to hear them stories. I yeah, suppose. it's really powerful. Yeah. On a more of a policy question. So I said at the start that you sit as a rep on the Home and Social Development SBC. Yeah. So for people that might not know what that is, including yeah, myself. And I think Home and Social is, is kind of, it's largely housing and homelessness, I think. In, Limerick, um, in the Limerick City County Council. Absolutely. Yes. So the Limerick City County Council, they have a number of these kind of um, subcommittees, I suppose, mm -hmm. where members of the chamber um, and members of the administration or the executive yeah. function of the council and then the, the public participation. Yeah. And would it be elected sit. officials on that too? 
Absolutely. Okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not sure how many elected. There's quite a number that sit in the Home and Social. So there's maybe 10 or 15 of them. And yeah. then there's the executive with the particular function. So in this case, it would be the executive that work in the housing department yes. of the local authority. You know, they have the particular expertise yeah. in it. And then members, the reps. So. Yeah. There's three reps in the home and so there's four actually because it was a, uh, somebody recently nominated um, and then but then we have um, we go back and we report to, uh, or before we sit on the on the um, on the council SPC or the yeah. special policy committee we meet with the PPN first yeah. and they kind of feed in things that they would like the reps to bring up. Yeah. at the SPC. And then you go then to this SPC, you sit exactly. at the SPC and you yeah. give the feedback. Yeah, so you try to get something on the agenda in advance yeah. if you can, and if you can't, because the agenda might have been issued mm -hmm. soon enough, you try to bring it up under any other business. That's good. You um, know? And what sort of things will be going on in these meetings? Um, so it's, it's, it's broad ranging, but it very much um, largely relates to housing and homelessness. So Around it, Limerick City and County? Uh, and County, okay, yes, yeah. because the local authority in Limerick is a joint local yes. authority. So it's the city and county um, and there's reps from both the city and county. So it could be anything from, you know, new developments. Uh, new housing to, developments? Yes, new oh, housing okay. developments to like homeless numbers, yeah. to funding, you know, what's going to happen when certain funding is yeah. stopped, you know, especially around actually that's been a big issue because of the social intervention fund in Limerick attached to regeneration. So in 2023, that's ah, going oh, to... Cease in its current form, yeah. and I suppose there's that advocacy work that it continues in some other forms. So yeah. these really important um, projects continue to be funded. Um, so that would be you know funding, uh, but it could be about retrofitting. You know, particularly in um, social houses and social housing estates, that some of the houses obviously are very old and very yeah. cold, and retrofitting. Um, it could be about like obviously emergency accommodation, homeless figures yeah. would be a really big issue. So it's it's very broad ranging. But it sounds right up Nova's alley. It's really important for Nova's. And you know, it's important for everybody. I think, yeah. you know, the executive and then the elected members of the council, you know, they come with their perspective, we mm -hmm. come with our perspective. And it's really, I think what the PPN does and what the special policy committee does is it helps everybody understand everybody's perspective. Because, you know, sometimes you're like, why do they do that? And then like, you were like, okay, that's why I'm still think there was another way maybe to do it, yeah, but yeah. I get why they did it and yeah. maybe now we can work. And equally, you know, um, you know, elected representatives of obviously most of them would never have any personal experience of homelessness or, That's true, you yeah. know, so it's really important to bring that lens yeah. or, or, and, you know, often people that, you know, I, I find it a really interesting thing is often, um, you know, the elected representatives might come and say, like a landlord came to me and said, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, that there's this antisocial behavior, which mm -hmm. absolutely isn't, it shouldn't be accepted, yeah. it needs to be addressed and all that. But it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that very often I feel like those perspectives are fed back to maybe councillors mm -hmm. because maybe landlords might have the social and cultural capital to advocate and go back. But it, they don't really maybe often hear the stories from the tenants because they don't have that same, you know, capital to, well, you're to advocate. To so that, sometimes then. it's important to say, yeah. you know, look, just provide another perspective. Yeah. You know? I think that's so great. Isn't yeah, it? it is so great. Yeah. 
And yeah. do you find that then really important, I suppose, for Nova's, like, I suppose, using the model of the PPN where you're bringing together organizations and people that were able to try and influence change? I exactly. Suppose? Yeah. And you've so much more power when, you know, Nova's can advocate for something, but as a PPN and you have a really wide variety of um, voluntary and community mm-hmm. and charity groups advocating together sure yeah. there's so much more power in that you know and as well like they also bring different perspectives you know so like even like we could be you know advocating one very narrow piece and they could bring a much broader perspective on it so we we really learn from each yeah. other and then there's power in each other and advocating as a group is, is much more powerful than advocating as a single organization and while novice is a really it's a big national homeless and housing charity we work with over five and a half thousand people every year we're not that well known yeah. you know we don't have you know like as i say like i'm the only person that does advocacy communications fundraising you know yeah so you know then you carry more weight if you have more organizations in That's working very true. together yeah and finally um we're going to finish up soon so i just want to ask you what are your hopes for the future and any changes that you want to see not to be make it too broad for you uh, in terms of the PPN or in terms in general for in Nova's? general for Nova's, oh yeah. well obviously big, so there's uh, I, I think we started talking about challenges and I went off on a tangent yeah. but obviously the number of people that need our services is the biggest yep. challenge but also staffing is a huge challenge at the yep. moment you know for every sector and this sector and social care and so is, is really difficult yep. at the moment so I, I think first and foremost you would love I suppose the biggest dream of what you'd like to be achieving is supporting people in their own homes yep. so you're going in at the prevention side of it you're going in that the tennis system of keeping people there mm-hmm. you know because people some people will always need a bit of support yeah. and that you're reducing your reliance on emergency accommodation and that we have more supply of housing so that's the biggest that's the biggest wish <laughs> for sure Una thank you so much for coming on board here so Una Burns again she's the head of policy and communications with Novas and thank you so much I suppose you've given us such a good insight on yourself, on Nova's, and then a small bit, I suppose, around how the PPN can kind of help with that. And this is what the Voices of Limerick podcast is about. It's kind of just getting the Voices of Limerick and the organisations and seeing what's happening. So thank you so much, Una, again, for coming on board. Thank you for listening to the Limerick Community Voices podcast by Limerick Public Participation Network. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To find out more about the Limerick PPN and to get involved, visit limerickppn.ie or email us at ppn at limerick.ie. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.